0: Whoa, Jay, I can't believe we're almost to Age of Apocalypse.
1: I know, Miles. I am really, really excited for that. That got me thinking. You
0: know how the whole thing started with Legion going back in time to assassinate Magneto?
1: But then Professor X jumped in the way because they were still BFFs? Sure. It kinda makes you wonder. Most things do. What if Legion had actually done it? Killed Magneto, you mean? Well, yeah, sure, there's actually a what-if issue about exactly that. So what happens? Well, let's see. Mutants are accepted and universally beloved. So far, so good. The Hellfire Club is mostly just a corporation. That's not terrible. Uh, Scott and Jean are retired in Alaska, raising Rachel and Nathan. Uh, Aren't they both a little old for that? Rachel and Nathan, I mean. Oh no, they're kids in this timeline. They
0: didn't have to go to the future. Oh, nice. And Professor X is still running the X-Men?
1: No, that's actually mostly Forge's job. Eh, that's okay. He seems like he'd be pretty competent. For some value of the term. That said, it's not like the X-Men actually do much actual fighting. So what do they do? Mostly fake choreographed fights as PR stunts. What?! I'm Jay Editon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 256 of Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera.
0: And before we dive into more issues from an era of Excalibur that isn't fill-ins but always feels like them, we have a really cool announcement! Jay, do you want to talk about it?
1: Yeah, so as some of y'all know, those of you who follow us um, on, on social media and on the blog— in June, um, we donated the entire um everything that we made from from T Public from our merch sales to Trans Lifeline, and we just got we 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 announced that a lot. A lot of people bought stuff, um, and we just got the final number from T Public, and y'all co- collectively um raised. Five hundred sixty-one
0: dollars and twenty-nine cents. Holy crap, everybody! And obviously, we're going to throw in the remainder to get it to an even six-one-six because, of course.
1: But thank you so much to everyone who was part of this and who helped us do this. Um, we're really, really glad to be able to 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 do have done something together as a community. That's that's this solid and makes this much of a difference.
0: Yes, very much so. You're all great. Yay for everybody! right right uh also yay for Excalibur sometimes we're going to talk about some of their comics today we're going to be covering Excalibur number 75 through 77
1: we are indeed and this is this is again in what i think of as the Post Alan Davis era, I think of it that way because I assume that at some point I'm gonna stop feeling perpetual vague disappointment that this comic isn't written and drawn by Alan Davis. Like there's a point when I'm gonna get used to that fact, and I'm still not there yet. No. Um but that said,
0: Warren Ellis isn't that far away. His run's pretty good. He's no Alan Davis. Well, who is? Aside from Alan Davis. Yes, exactly. But these issues certainly have a great deal of context, a great deal of history that funnels into them, like so much whipped cream into a filled cupcake that has whipped cream in it and is also British and mutants.
1: Well, that's sort of an appropriate metaphor in terms of things that are fresh, fresh baked, because over the course of its last few issues, Excalibur has become a very, very different comic from the one that we're used to.
0: Its core cast still consists of Nightcrawler, the furry blue teleporter who wears a turtleneck like nobody's business.
1: Shadowcat, the spunky, ambiguously aged, often t- intangible computer genius, who can phase while being the locus of the majority of the Marvel Universe's queer subtext at this time.
0: And speaking of queer subtext, Phoenix, the alternate future daughter of the recently married in this universe, Cyclops and Jean Gray.
1: Who is totally Shadowcat's girlfriend?
0: Totally. Now, everybody else on the team, which was previously very large, was unceremoniously shoved out of the team.
1: And when we say shoved out, we mean by the writer and by Marvel. Like, they weren't fired, they were just sort of not there anymore. And that included previous team leader Captain Britain, who was lost in the time stream off-panel.
0: And his partner Megan, who's been racked with grief and shapeshifting uncooperatively because of said grief.
1: Now, meanwhile, Phoenix, who's already somewhat unstuck in space and time, has been having occasional temporal overlaps with the time-lost Captain Britain, which usually involve her suddenly gaining enormous, beefy arms, so that's a thing.
0: Nobody knows about this except for Rachel, because, really, how do you even bring that up? I mean, I guess she could talk about that time her mom got tentacle arms. Let us all never forget that time that Jean Grey got tentacle arms.
1: Maybe that's what they bonded over, like how they're on such good terms now.
0: Yeah, that probably happened off-panel, too. Excalibur's currently based out of Muir Isle, the research center run by Jack of All Sciences, Dr. Moira McTaggart.
1: Assisting Dr. McTaggart is the newly arrived Rory Campbell, who's sexy and nice and interesting and smart, and also potentially doomed to become the murderous anti-mutant cyborg Ahab from Rachel's Timeline.
0: Also, as we continue our recap and now end it, we want to say one more time, we really miss Alan Davis.
1: (sighs) That brings us to Excalibur number 75. Hello, I Must Be Going, written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Ken Lashley, inked by Randy Elliott, colored by Pat Garrahy and Chris Mathis. And this this has a, a fancy, sparkly, cover which feels really anticlimactic based on the cover like I feel like the cover has not earned the sparkles.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's basically just a page from later in the comic where Phoenix and Captain Britain are all smooshed together in a big time-streamy vortex, but I do like the sparkles, so unlike the shiny red cover of X-Factor number 100, another double-sized milestone issue, this is sort of like a prismatic, silvery background. It looks like very detailed, monochromatic stained
1: glass, or maybe just broken glass. It's not actually a holographic cover, but it's a cover printed on holographic paper.
0: Indeed. And just like X-Factor number 100 also, there was a non-sparkly, cheaper version of this issue available. But I'm just saying, like, I'm not a fan of giving into every overpriced cover gimmick. I do
1: like shiny things. We already knew you were pretty much a 12-year-old girl, Miles. Mm,
0: In many ways, it's true. But as far as the issue...
1: This story, weirdly, is narrated by Rory Campbell, which feels incredibly cheap, because it's a massive turning point, and it's a massive emotional climax, and also the parts without Rory Campbell are way better than the parts with Rory Campbell, and also, like, it's, it's Excalibur having this incredibly emotional, momentous moment narrated by the guy who just doesn't know them very well, and so there are a lot of pages that are basically him being like, um... Oh, man.
0: Yeah, at one point he actually comments on how ridiculous continuity is, and it's like, dude, we know. We're X-Men readers. But I think that may be part of it. I think Rory may be intended to be the kind of entry point to the book, the reader stand-in, after the book revamped its premise a few issues ago. But I don't think it really works. I mean, especially Nightcrawler and Kitty are two incredibly well-known characters to anyone even casually versed in X-Men.
1: Yeah, if Anyone should have narrated this issue outside of 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 Phoenix, outside of Rachel Summers. It's definitely Shadowcat. But no, we get Rory Campbell. This issue comes out in the immediate aftermath of X-Men, X-Men 30, that's Scott and Jean's wedding. Rachel ferries Excalibur home positively giddy because now her parents are married, she's reconciled with Jean, and she might have a chance to exist legitimately in this timeline after all.
0: And this does seem a little weird because obviously whatever kid they may or may not have may or may not turn into someone even remotely like her and certainly won't turn into exactly her because she's had all these strange experiences in an alternate universe. But at the same time, I get it. Rachel Summers has always felt like she didn't belong anywhere. And if she can have just this one little link, it's
1: incredibly meaningful to her. But she can't because Megan is waiting for her back on Mur Muir- Isle, and Megan has worked out that Brian is coming back or trying to come back because she is at her sexiest, basically. It's very creepy, and it's very weird, and I don't like it. I mean, listen to this line. Look how
0: my body has morphed in preparation for his return. Who
1: even says shit like that?
0: She's presenting like a mandrel! But no, seriously, this is in character, I guess. Like, yes, we know that Megan has kind of a uh, an ill-formed identity, especially around Brian, but she's also come so far over the last, like,
1: many dozens of issues. It's bad, and I don't like it. Um... Anyway, this intensely uncomfortable scene is interrupted by a mysterious cloaked figure at the door. Whoever it is, Kurt called them, and as it turned out, it is his sister and or girlfriend, Amanda Sefton, a.k.a. Jemaine Sardos, now a.k.a. Day Tripper.
0: Okay, two things. One, uh, Jay, do you know like the ring doorbell thing where you can like get a little camera in your doorbell and see who's at your door before you let them in?
1: I know that there are a number of such things. Right, so
0: what that makes me wonder is if when when people go to each other's doors, now more of them are going to wear cloaks so that they can dramatically unmask at the perfect moment rather than uh the person in the house knowing who they are as they walk up.
1: Probably not this time of year.
0: Uh okay, well maybe once it starts to get a little chillier. Other thing, day tripper. So I've been thinking about this name because it's probably a reference to something, but there are so many things it could be a reference to. It could be a reversal of Nightcrawler. It could be a website and blog by this dude who writes about exploring Texas. It could be a 1965 Beatles B-side. It could be a pretty great comic by Fabio Moon and Gabriel Ba that wouldn't come out for many, many years. Like, I don't know. What's, what's the idea behind this?
1: I've got a theory. And she points out that she just says that she thought her name sounded too boring and she wanted a cool code name, So she's been experimenting with them. This is a work in progress. My theory is that it's a reference to her main job as a flight attendant. Oh.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, okay, so if I were to become a superhero and needed a name, then based on my day job, my name would be something along the lines of... Cable. Oh. I was gonna say gross keyboard toucher, but... Yeah, Cable does kind of have a ring to it. I should see if it's taken.
1: Probably not. I mean, who would name a superhero Cable?
0: (laughs) Seriously. Anyway, though, Day Tripper, which is to say Amanda, which is to say Jemaine, we haven't seen her in quite a long time. Now, she was in the first chapter of the Muir Island saga, fighting all the bad guys, and then just didn't show up anymore. Like, nothing happened to her, she just wasn't in the story anymore. I think the writers kind of forgot about her. Admittedly, it was a weird time in Marvel writer continuity. But the last time we saw her and Nightcrawler really interacting was way back in 1986, way back in Uncanny number 204. Didn't he dump her because he was having an existential crisis about the Beyonder? He did! He was like, oh, apparently, like, God does exist, but he's this douchebag with a jerry curl, and now I'm all messed up? And, uh, you probably just used magic to make me love you anyway. I'm an asshole. I'm gonna go mope, and then you're not gonna show up in a comic for many years.
1: See, that's super crappy if you're a main character, like, breaking up with your supporting character partner, because it basically kicks them out of the comic.
0: Yeah, seriously. Well, uh, I'm glad Kurt's being much nicer to her these days. Hey, why did he bring her here?
1: Well, uh, he reached out to her, as as the the nicest sorceress they know, um, to see if she could help with the Brian situation. Rachel is really upset by this. She sees it as a betrayal, and she storms off and goes and reads Megan's mind directly And uh, Brian attempts to reach his way back through it, Um, but she doesn't want to let him through. I actually really like Rachel's dialogue here. Brian, please, wherever you are, whenever you are, try to understand what it is you're asking of me. For the first time in my entire life, I have a life, a present, a future. You're asking me to give that up to exchange my place in this era with you. To leave what I do know, again, and venture into what I don't. I'm sorry, Brian, I can't do that. I'm sorry, but I won't.
0: And God, I get it. I absolutely get it. I mean, I don't know what the right thing to do is here. I I guess the heroic thing to do would be for her to just sacrifice herself without a thought. But I like that she doesn't. Because this is the Rachel we know. This is a Rachel who's learned to hold on desperately to whatever semblance of a normal life she can have because she didn't get to for most of her life.
1: Is that the heroic thing? Because presumably when you're saying heroic, you're talking about altruistic. And on one hand, yeah, people miss Brian. Megan misses Brian. On the other hand, if we're talking about who has the capacity to do more overall good by being present on Earth in 616, it's unquestionably Rachel at this point. She's just exponentially more powerful. Also, she tends way less toward being an asshole. Well, she did try to destroy the entire universe because she was mad at someone once. You try to end the
0: world one time and nobody ever shuts up about it. Jeez, I tell ya. She did decide
1: against it, ultimately, so there's that. Right? Give the lady some credit. Now... Brian doesn't. Brian just straight up tries to force his way back, again by way of his big, beefy arms, and this time Kitty walks in on Rachel, panicking in the aftermath. I kinda wish Kitty had
0: walked in and just seen Rachel with those gigantic, muscular arms, because how do you even react to that? Like, on the one hand, it's, like, horrifying Cronenbergian body horror. On the other hand, it's hilarious.
1: On yet a third hand, it's Excalibur. It's Thursday.
0: Well, yeah, well, good point. So Kitty kind of wedges her way into Rachel's mind because they are, you know, gal pals and walks with Rachel through all the stuff that Rachel's been avoiding confronting and processing in her memories and her regrets, whatever. And that culminates in Rachel's guilt and also her survivor's guilt from the time when she was one of Ahab's hounds, from the time that she was forced into hunting down mutants for Ahab. That's rough, buddy.
1: This is, this is a really good scene, and Kitty is a really, really good friend. And in particular, the way she emphasizes that it's a thing they're doing together and sticks with Rachel and is there for her to ground and contextualize what's happening and provide perspective on the stuff that's still very immediate to Rachel is, is really cool.
0: And Kitty finishes up her emotionally mature pep talk with...
1: It's time you stopped punishing yourself as severely as Ahab once did. Come on, Red. Let's find what there is to find on the other side. Together. Gal pals. My my notes here are just in brackets, sobs and bisexual. Legit. So, I'm torn, because I really like this scene. I think it's a wonderful little
0: character connection moment between Rachel and Kitty, But what it leads into is Rachel deciding that she's going to sacrifice herself by going into the time stream to save Brian. And I guess I don't really see the connection between her survivor's guilt and her wanting to hang on to her life. Like, those seem like two different things.
1: They do, yeah. And it's stupid and it's a bad connection and it bothers me. And this is a weirdly disjointed scene and a weirdly disjointed thread of, of, of thought on Rachel's part the general impression I think that we're supposed to take away based on it is that this got her through whatever big issue she had that was blocking her from doing the heroic right thing but honestly I don't I again I, I, I don't think it necessarily is the heroic right thing I don't think self-sacrifice is necessarily the only ethical play here and it's also really a shame to see Rachel come out of this incredibly connected moment and then immediately be like, okay, I guess I'll just dive into the time stream by myself now.
0: Yeah, and I mean, obviously, editorially, they were setting up The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, and Rachel needed to end up in a different time period. Like, it was a plot need, but I feel like you could have gotten there a lot more gracefully.
1: But she's super old in that other time period. She's got a lot of time before she technically has to be
0: there. Right, I mean, did she just, like, I don't know, learn to Joust in the meantime or something.
1: We're gonna get to that later, not not later this episode later in in the the general time time span of the podcast theoretically. but I assume that some of it is that that they you know that she had to spend a fairly long time building the Ascani religion and setting up the the incredibly intricate organization um, that's there at the beginning of the Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix. But again, still, I feel like you know a good 20, 30 years she she'd have been fine.
0: Seriously. So, yeah, everybody gathers. They're going to do some magic stuff to get Brian back. And Rory, in his potentially confused narration, talks about how Rachel looks calm and happy. But in Ken Lashley's art, she actually looks, like, super depressed and dour. And I don't think this is supposed to be dramatic irony. I think it's just the art and the writing not matching at all. Like, I really like Ken Lashley later, but um, his art... Here, uh, I'm not so sure about it sometimes. Well,
1: the question—there's also the question of whether the issue is the art not matching to the script or the dialogue and, and text on, on page then not matching to the art, depending about the, uh, on the order they came. Well, because uh, comics, ideally, are collaborative storytelling. Like, it's not just the artist following detailed instructions—
0: yeah, valid point, point. and in the mighty Marvel manner, the dialogue would have come in after the art, so, yeah, maybe the blame uh, falls on Scott Lobdell.
1: Anyway, what Rachel is either happy or resigned about is the greater situation, and I think we should let Amanda explain this, because it's really too silly to paraphrase.
0: That's Daytripper, thank you very much. Anyway, she says, Near as I can discern. My mystic ability is being fairly limited is that Megan's love for Brian, theirs for each other, is acting as a sort of temporal anchor for his journey through time and space. Pulling him back, if it is even possible, might not be doing him any favors. He's been trapped in a chronological wave, buffeted about to and fro from the dawn of time, until the end of time, to the point where he might very well be insane when he returns. As this timeline's most powerful and glaring temporal anomaly... Brian's apparently trying to switch places with Phoenix. There may be a way to retrieve Captain Britain without sacrificing Rachel, but to be honest, it's not likely.
1: And here I will draw from another source to for, for my reaction. Uh, in the words of the internet, thanks, I hate it.
0: Yeah, yeah, basically that. I gotta say, like, if you're gonna do Magical Babble, I feel like you really need to work in some more Hori hosts of Hagoth and Crimson Bands of Sidorak, but uh, that's just my personal opinion.
1: Yeah, Amanda is really good at making biz- big cosmic stuff sound kinda boring.
0: Yeah, come on, day tripper. Trip that day better. So, then there's this big, magic-y thingamajig that happens— And we experience it through Rory Campbell's point of view and narration, so what we get is kind of ambiguous and maybe a little
1: anticlimactic. It's basically a big splash page of Rachel and Megan holding hands and yelling, and the narrative equivalent of of a prolonged, who the hell even knows, man.
0: And time gets very swirly as they enter the time stream itself, and a whole bunch of alternate universe people pop up. Although, mostly, they just look like the regular universe characters that we know. It's a bunch of random
1: X-Men folks. But, like, their, their their little statuettes haven't been painted yet.
0: Yeah, yeah, based on the coloring. Or maybe the colorist just ran out of time, I don't know. And while Rachel is probing around in the time stream trying to find Brian, which she does, Rory has his own time stream experience. I guess he was standing too close and he he looked in the trap, despite Ray's advice. And he sees Ahab. He sees his future self, which is basically him with, you know, robot arms and a beard looking real mean. He doesn't know who Ahab is, but he knows that this is probably not great.
1: Well, his conditional future self. Honestly, if he doesn't have context for this dude, why is this— Losing the limbs is rough, but, like, knowing that your future was cyborg pirate, which I feel like is what you'd kind of get just from looking at Ahab, there there are worse fates. Oh, it's true.
0: But something-something time stream, something-something emotional resonance, something-something—
1: Ahab just looks
0: mean. Look at him. He looks like a jerk.
1: Anyway, that's beside the point, because the real center of this comic is that Rachel realizes that she can't pull Brian through. She has to trade places with him. And Kurt objects, but she decides she's going to do it anyway.
0: And Rachel, as she disappears into the time stream, has one last request for the obvious person she should have shared her last moments with, Kitty Pride.
1: When I'm born to Scott and Jean, promise me you'll hold me in your arms, keep me safe and warm, and give me a kiss hello.
0: Oh, God. I have a lot of objections to a lot of things in this issue, but oh, the fucking feelings that it pulls forth when it does things right— I love Rachel Summers. I love her as a character so much. And this is going to be the last we're going to see of her as a major character for a long, long time. And in my personal opinion, this era is going to be the last time we're ever going to see her written as a very interesting character that feels the way she used to.
1: Yeah, she's had very occasional moments since. But this is really... I mean, really, I feel like Days of Future Yet to Come is where representations of Rachel Summers' kind of peak.
0: Yeah, I mean, honestly, after Alan Davis, I don't know that anyone ever really got her again, even when Chris Claremont, the guy who created her, came back to writing X-Men years later.
1: Brian is now back with his own impressive space-time mullet and insists that everyone call him Britannic. Fucking bright! this was not worth losing Rachel for.
0: No, although I gotta say the red body stocking he wears with like weird black patterns, kind of Archangel style all over it. I did really enjoy drawing him in that costume in my middle school notebooks, so at least we got that out of the trade. But I agree, that doesn't even out to losing Rachel. So, there's a bit of narration about how the universe is now correcting itself by putting Rachel back into the time stream, but A, it's sending her to the wrong alternate timeline, it's not sending her back to Earth 811, and B, why now? She's been displaced in time for like years and years
1: and years and years and years. And C, Captain Britain Corps— Exists to be universe hoppers. I mean, they're they're they mostly stay in their own universes, but they kind of have hall passes to the multiverse.
0: Yeah, and I guess it gets kind of weird as far as what's the time stream and what's the multiverse because they're sort of but not exactly the same thing in the Marvel universe. But yeah, hooray for where the plot apparently was supposed to go. Scott Lobdell, from what I've read, just kind of wanted to shake things up, and admittedly he did. But but goddamn. So as for Rachel. She is indeed off to Cable's future, Earth-4935. Like we mentioned, she's going to become Mother Ascani. And we learn about that journey in the 1999 and 2000 miniseries X-Men Phoenix. And the next time Rachel really appears in earnest as a major character is going to be way later than that in Extreme X-Men when Chris Claremont comes back. She turns into a dinosaur at one point. It's pretty weird.
1: To add insult to injury, the 616 version of her... Is never going to be born. Yeah,
0: yeah, so there's that. I mean, I guess technically there's still time. Scott and Gene are both back from the dead, so I don't know. That's complicated and extra weird. Well, anyway, we uh, have a backup story after that. Excalibur number 75 also has A Demon Went to Church on Tuesday.
1: This is written by Jim Kruger, penciled and inked by Tim Sale, and colored by Gregory Wright. And it's Very much a backup story. Kurt saves a woman from a fire, and she freaks out and calls him a demon. Glum and miserable, Kurt heads to a church, goes to confession, and requests absolution for being a mutant. The priest drops some much-needed wisdom on him, including a heavy-handed moment of we all have our crosses to bear, juxtaposed with the X-Men logo, so specifically, presumably, a St. Andrew's cross in this case. So... I didn't really like this story at first, and then I read it
0: again, and I found that the more I read it, the more it grew on me. And I think a lot of that is that Tim Sale's art is freaking gorgeous. It's all moody yeah. and shadowy. It is. Yeah, oh, it's it's wonderful. And I don't know. It kind of explores a, a character conflict that we've seen handled very badly at times, which is. Uh, comparing the carefree, swashbuckling entertainer Kurt Wagner to the pious and in some ways self-loathing, very serious Kurt Wagner. And that's not something that's handled well often. Honestly, I think this is one of the better examples just because it specifically addresses it. It has Kurt thinking about you know, his days as a performer in the circus, and then it has him hated and feared by this woman whose life he saved and talking to a priest about it, just being really honest and saying, yeah, I feel like i've sinned just by being born a mutant. Like it's a backup story absolutely. There is no continuity implication, but i think it's a nice little character piece personally.
1: It also basically concludes that it sucks to be an X-Man. So,
0: yeah, there's that. I mean, kind of does suck to be an X-Man a lot of the time. Yeah, kind of does. It also really reminded me of um a scene from I feel like we can talk about plot points from the movie Logan, right? Like it's been a few years. Yeah, it's been a few years. Oh, okay, well, there's a scene that juxtaposes the Christian cross and the X-Men logo, and I think does it very tastefully, and yeah, this kind of reminded me of that.
1: It, it would have been much more awkward if they'd done it during during the time that Wolverine actually got crucified on a St. Andrew's cross.
0: Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, they were kind of walking a fine line with that one, it's true. But that takes us to Excalibur number 76, Dog Years, written by Scott Lobdell and Richard Ashford, penciled once again by Ken Lashley, inked by Randy Elliott, and colored by Pat Garrahi and Chris Mathis. This is the first half of a two-parter that is significantly less consequential.
1: It is, however, a Nightcrawler story, which is what makes me kind of wonder about that last backup and whether it was specifically there to be something of a a structural or tonal lead-in into this story. Hard to say. But we uh, do
0: get some opening narration as we see these scenes of a horrible riot happening in Germany.
1: Nearly half a century since the death of Adolf Hitler. Ten years after Orwell's big brother failed to appear. Four years since the fall of the Berlin Wall. Two years after the breakup of the Soviet Union, the streets are once again awash with fascism and racism. Hey,
0: wait! All that math is wrong! It's 2019 now! Those numbers are 25 years too small!
1: Unless- Miles.
0: Miles. Yeah. Yeah. Everything is terrible all the time.
1: I'd also like to point out that per the novel's chronology, Big Brother would have been established for some time by the year 1984.
0: Take that, Scott Lobdell and Richard Ashford. So, anyway, all of this racially-based rioting is watched over by everybody's favorite Skeletor-but-without-the-furry-panties bad guy, Despair, and everybody's favorite ram-horned, green-skinned sorceress, Margali Sardos.
1: He really needs furry panties. He really specifically needs furry panties because of a panel next issue. Oh, uh, I guess we'll get to that. Intriguing. Okay, you know how everyone's butts get drawn in, like, a weird level of detail? when they're in superhero costumes. Yeah, totally. Okay, so there's a moment when we can see, like, the musculature of his legs really quickly, or really, really clearly, and his back, but then his butt's just sort of like a circle, like he has no butt crack.
0: Oh, well, maybe that's why he's so mad and does supervillain things.
1: He, he just has, like, one all-encompassing buttock.
0: A unibuttock? That presents some difficulties. Although I guess he's a fear lord um. rather than a mammal, so I don't even know how digestion works. Like, how do you poop out negative emotion?
1: Does he poop out negative emotion? Like, what's the byproduct of his digestive process?
0: Uh, evil magic
1: powers? I, I, I'm i not, I'm really not sure how this works. Maybe, maybe he only has, has, like, proper butt anatomy when it's convenient?
0: Maybe. Okay, fearlordbuttanatomy.wikipedia.org. Uh, no, the site doesn't exist. I guess we'd better create it.
1: Like, there are a lot of other things that it would significantly complicate, because butts are basically what, it, what makes it possible for us to be fully bipedal.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess he probably just, you know, hovers. I mean, he's a magic guy. Anyway. Anyway, we may be getting slightly off track here. So, the last X-book we saw despair in was actually Uncanny 144 way back in 1981. That was the story with Lee Forrester and stuff. His deal is that he amplifies and feeds off of negative emotions. He's just a super jerk.
1: Wait, didn't Rachel fight him in Excalibur?
0: You know, I thought the same thing, and I looked it up. That was actually Nightmare. I always get the two of them confused.
1: Anyway, you can hear all about uh, Despair's earlier clash with with at least one of the X-Men in episode 14 of this podcast, uh, the classily titled Look Upon My Man-Thing and Despair.
0: I don't think we've ever had a better title than that episode. I don't think we ever will. Yeah, no, probably not. So, anyway, he was also created by Cthulhu's son, using as raw materials the fear that was created by the sinking of Atlantis and Lemuria, and that's pretty awesome, right?
1: Um... Also, and more significantly to this story, he makes his first appearance in Excalibur number 76 while reciting a bad rewrite of the Rolling Stones' Sympathy for the Devil.
0: So I didn't catch that at all until you pointed it out, and I, like, now have a little more respect for Scott Lobdell and Richard Ashford. I'm not sure which plotted and which scripted, but whoever scripted, my hat is off to you, sir, for, like, specifically this, not necessarily for other stuff in the comic, because I'm not so big on this era.
1: And I am balancing that out by putting my hat back on in Judgment. That's legit. My Judgment hat.
0: Mm. Now, Margali Sardos was last seen way back in King Size X-Men Annual Number 4. She is Nightcrawler's adoptive mom, and in that annual, she fully built a working replica of Dante's Inferno just to trap Kurt in it so that she could let him know how mad she was at him.
1: I feel like Dr. Benjamin Spock would have some opinions about this. Yeah, probably, probably legit. Nightcrawler has all the worst moms. God, he really does. Does he ever have a third mom? Is she terrible also? Probably. Ooh, ooh, ooh. So this makes me think of the layers of of, of brain, um, membrane. Oh, yeah, the
0: blood-brain barrier. There's the- Yeah. There's the Pia Mater, the Arachnoid Mater, and the Dura Mater. Specifically, the pious Mother, the Spider Mother, and the Tough Mother.
1: Exactly, so I'm, I'm trying to think of which would be which, but, yeah, you know, there, there is presumably a third one out there somewhere, I guess, maybe? Oh, okay. Yeah,
0: I mean, it stands to reason, uh, based on biology.
1: I mean, it's the Marvel Universe. Everyone's third mother is basically Mr. Sinister. Yeah,
0: well, good point, good point. Um, I think he'd probably be the spider mother. Anyway, as all of this is going on, Amanda Sefton, day-tripper, goes to fetch Nightcrawler from the hospital, because this issue takes place very shortly after X-Men Unlimited number four, where there was all that nonsense with Mystique and Graydon Creed, and Nightcrawler got really beaten up toward the end because Graydon Creed apparently is excellent at punching.
1: And nothing
0: else. Kurt has been acrobatically flirting with the nurses, uh, including, like, doing handstands and somehow having his hospital gown not fall down. I'm not sure how that works. He's got powers and a tail. True, but his tail's there, It doesn't seem to be holding the thing in place, doesn't matter. Point is, Daytripper shows up to say, Hey, my mom and your adoptive mom is in trouble, we gotta go. And so of course, since he's in acrobatic flirting mode, he acrobatically flirts with her, and they kiss, and as the kiss parts, she says, That was nice. But she looks so disgusted again, there's this, like, writing art utter mismatch.
1: Okay, it is possible that she just takes kissing really seriously, but it's also possible that she's been trying to be disapproving, and so this is a grumpy admission that, okay, that was nice.
0: That's possible. Uh, I don't know. Hard to say. I kind of like the idea of her taking kissing really seriously, just being very solemn about it. Just always holding up
1: scorecards. Yeah,
0: probably. Oh god, Mystique would do that. She's that kind of creepy mom. Mystique would actually turn
1: into the Russian judge. Good thing she's
0: dead right now. So Amanda day trips them over to East Germany and explains the despair deeds.
1: Germany's post-reunification economy is a mess, and those economic woes have precipitated racism and xenophobia, which despair has happily fed and fed off of. But now despair has Margali. And the deal is that Despair can somehow
0: mystically sense Amanda, Uh, apparently she's good at magic but not being subtle about it, which, fair enough, she's too busy taking kissing very seriously to work on her stealth spells, and so Kurt has to go in alone. This is a sneaking mission, Snake, on-site
1: procurement only. Wait, but what does Despair want with Margali?
0: So, Margali uses a form of magic known as the Winding Way, which uh, apparently makes you really powerful sometimes and really not powerful other times. So, because Margali is at a low point on the Winding Way, Despair can, like, suck out her magic using the extra strength granted to him by the racist rioting, and thus he can become super awesome at the Winding Way and, like, do more bad stuff.
1: God, fascists really do ruin everything.
0: Seriously. So, Nightcrawler goes in to attempt to fix this, but what he finds is a mob of racist jerks about to attack a Romani child mid-race riot. I'm not gonna quote the racist jerks because they say some pretty messed up stuff, but, like, trust me, they're super shitty.
1: And also, content warning for the visual companion, if you pick, if you click through, if we include this scene, which we probably will include at least a little bit of... There are going to be a number of racist slurs um, in it.
0: Thanks, 1990s comics, for not making me realize that was a racist slur and thus having me say it a whole bunch. Damn it. Uncool. Yeah. So, Nightcrawler tries to help, but he gets beaten to a pulp, and that's no good. Margali and Despair watch all this from their scrying pool. I love scrying pools. I just love the concept. And Despair's like, ha ha ha, look how awesome bigotry is. It's super powerful. Yay, I'm Skeletor. But Margali herself is overjoyed because think about it. She stuck her son in Dante's Inferno. She knows magically that he just found out that she had lied to him about his real mother being Mystique. And he still came to save her. So she's like, aw shit, I'm going to kick some serious ass because now I am super pumped.
1: Such a nice boy. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Meanwhile, on Muir Island, Kitty is fast asleep. She's been waiting and waiting at the communications monitor for a call from Kurt for days because he basically just went, oh my god, there's an emergency and disappeared.
0: Damn it, Kurt. If you're well enough to flirt, you're well enough to alert Kitty over the phone. Also, like, can't CR communicators ring on multiple phones? I mean, it was the 1990s. Like, if someone called your number, it would ring every phone in your house. I feel like Muir Island would absolutely have that ability, but eh, what can you do?
1: Maybe Britannic just messed them all up somehow.
0: Yeah, probably he couldn't figure them out and just punched them a whole bunch, and now they don't work quite right. They couldn't fully repair them.
1: So, one of my issues with Britannic, and, and by the way, uh, Downstairs as this is happening, Rory is trying to stop Britannic from leaving in the middle of a post time stream diagnostic session, and I just keep thinking every time I see him, every time he has a page, that this whole plotline would be way better if, in addition to being inappropriately formal and, like, weirdly morally rigorous, he also attempted to eat things that weren't food. Right. Like, I just keep thinking of him as a palette-swapped version of
0: the Tick with an amazing mullet. Like, he's this huge dude, kind of out of touch with reality, very dedicated, very sure of himself. He yells things like, None may stand in the path of the righteous, it is ordained! Like, he's if the Tick were super British. The Patrick Warburton version of the Tick, specifically, I think.
1: But he's not, though, because he's he's not really quite weird enough. That's the thing. It was this giant plot thread, last issue. We lost a character
0: who'd been around for decades to bring him back. You'd think they'd want to focus on this new, mysterious, important character,
1: but he's just in the background in this one scene, and he's boring. You'd think they'd at least make some kind of effort to make him seem worth the sacrifice.
0: I know. I mean, he'll be britannic for a little bit after this, but I wanted him to be cooler instead of just having a kind of neat costume.
1: I would settle for Dopier. I feel like, again— Brian Braddock is fun when he is when he is just sort of the worst. So having him basically pratfall through the time stream would have been fine.
0: Yeah. Well, anyway, he's got to do some sort of mission. So Megan, who at this point is all like, "Ooh, I am mysterious and I must do whatever Brian wants," and Kitty Pride, who's like, "I got to keep an eye on these kids," go off, and they're they're not going to be in next issue. Speaking of next issue, let's talk about Excalibur number seventy-seven, lowest common denominator. Sure is. Written by Scott Lobdell, Richard Ashford, and Chris Cooper, penciled by Ken Lashley and Robert Brown, inked by Randy Elliott, Keith Champagne, Jason Gorder, and Don Hudson,
1: but colored by alone Chris Mathis.
0: Maybe Chris Mathis is actually the name of an artist collective.
1: Maybe Chris Mathis is basically the colorist equivalent of Britannic. Maybe he came through the time stream, newly equipped with a really righteous mullet, amped up powers, and a new drive to just color the hell out of this issue.
0: Could be. Could be. I mean, the coloring's pretty good, so uh, nice work. It's not shabby. Yeah. Anyway, it's flashback time as this issue begins, as an adorable tiny Kurt Wagner meets up with his friend Christian, but Christian says they can't be friends anymore, because Christian's bigoted anti-Romani and anti-mutant dad, who conflates the two, which is actually a really nice and really sad story touch, said that he'd kill Christian if Christian hangs out with Kurt anymore. And as Christian steps into the light, we see that he's already been beaten up really badly, and he runs away, and Kurt's like, oh no, God, I'm so sorry, I'll, I'll try not to be a demon anymore, God, please, just make me good, it's... Genuinely tragic. One thing about this issue, like the last issue felt very Richard Ashworthy in terms of the dialogue. It's much better this time, and I wonder if that's the influence of Chris Cooper, the third writer. But a very sweet and not currently green Margali Sardos comes to comfort her adoptive son, telling him that love always lasts longer than hate, and it's actually really sweet.
1: Yeah, I mean, she got kind of horrible later, But at the time, in the moment, you know, when Kurt was little, she was actually a pretty good parent. Yeah, she doesn't even create a horrible demonic hell
0: realm to trap him in even once here. That we know of. Okay, maybe that happens after the scene. But back in the present day, back in the present time, Kurt comes to having been knocked about in this race riot and manages to get both himself and the kid he was protecting away, but the violence is just getting worse and worse and worse. And Despair shows up, astrally, mystically, somethingly, to taunt Kurt.
1: Yeah, so Despair shows up, and um, he he decides he's going to taunt Kurt about how he's going to use all of this hatred to steal all of Margali's magic.
0: She will be a dried-up husk, while I will have the strength to dominate this world and its inhabitants, so I can show you all the stark emptiness that dwells at the core of your mortal existence.
1: Wouldn't that mostly just be pertinent to Iron Man? Stark. Emptiness. (laughs) At the core, because, like, he's inside the suit.
0: I see what you did
1: there. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I feel like rather than this big plot, though, like, couldn't he just do
0: some free showings of some Werner Herzog films or something? Or some Lars von Trier?
1: Or maybe just, like, the wrong two Coen brothers movies back-to-back?
0: Seriously, there are way easier ways to depress a large quantity of people.
1: So, Amanda shows up to teleport Kurt to Despair's base in, in the catacombs of whatever city they're in, and Kurt, ever the swashbuckling opportunist, sees a pair of crossed blades on the wall and realizes,
0: And I may have just discovered the perfect foil against Despair's plan.
1: Because
0: it's a sword and swords are foils sometimes, and I think one of them is here. So, Nightcrawler interrupts Despair's Margali murdering ritual by throwing Despair a sword of his own.
1: And going off on a spate of swashbucklery silliness that I have to think in this specific context is actually a tactical move, given that he's fighting against Despair with, with again, gleeful silliness. Having set forth my challenge,
0: honor requires that you be armed, sirrah. Though I dare say a blackguard like yourself knows as little about honor as he knows about how to treat a lady. Now, as for your offense upon said lady, let my blade make answer. Have at thee! Well, then. I love Nightcrawler. But, unfortunately, all of that bravado isn't enough because despair, nonetheless, starts to win and he's about to... feed on Kurt, to bring forth the most dark and disturbing memories Kurt has, and then to dine upon them like they're, you know, food.
1: But like, dark and disturbing food, prepared really well? Uh,
0: yeah, exactly. Uh, Do you remember that one time that um, Burger King had a Halloween Whopper and it had a black bun, and the main feedback that people gave forth is that it made them poop green?
1: I do not remember that. Well, well, that's
0: a thing. Anyway, Trixie Kurt Wagner has been keeping a specific memory at
1: the front of his mind. And this is the time that an adult Christian, um, his childhood friend, came back to apologize for being a jerk, which, you know, really kind of wasn't his fault. It was in a coercive, abusive situation. And to introduce his his young son to his own childhood best friend.
0: It's actually super sweet. And of course, despair cannot abide super sweetness. He prefers hops to malts. And he, you know, is all paralyzed by this. And then Kurt stabs him through the chest with his sword saying, kind of gets you right there, doesn't
1: it? Oh, damn, Kurt Wagner. How he? he, is—I don't think he has any kids in the 616, but I feel like he's so qualified on the dad jokes front.
0: I mean, he ends up meeting his alternate universe daughter Talia. I hope he told her a bunch of dad jokes. Oh, man, I totally bet he did. So, anyway, Margali, before despair, not dies because he can't really, but dissipates, points out again to Kurt that, yeah, love lasts longer then hate it's sort of the running theme of this issue and I don't know that I agree that the world always works that way or even usually works that way but I really wish it did it's a beautiful sentiment
1: yeah it's a superhero comic if there's anywhere that where where you're allowed to see the possibility of the world working that way this is of course it
0: absolutely uh, also, Amanda took care of the whole angry mob fight using magic-y stuff, presumably disrupting Despair's own control over them while Despair was distracted. And I have to wonder, like, what the ratio is, what the proportion is of existing horrible racism and bigotry causing the fight and Despair amplifying it. Like, how much was already there and how much did Despair add on? I think the story works better if it was just mostly, perhaps even entirely, already there.
1: Yeah, and Despair is, is is I think, pretty pretty conclusive about that 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 he's he's really just feeding off of things that already existed if, if he's doing anything he's marginally amping them up or being you know the spark that that lights the fuel that's been building up for a long time that he didn't create any of this
0: you know i really like despair as a villain part of that is that he looks like skeletor and i do approve I actually had a skeletor uh costume when i was a very small child at one point i went to see my father at work while i was wearing it and apparently everybody was quite tickled uh So I like that about him, but yeah, I also like that he's an excellent symbol of a villain, and I think many of the best villains are. Like, yes, it's a very obvious, almost almost on-the-nose, almost-too-blunt comparison to real-world stuff, but like you just said, Jay, it's a superhero comic, you know? That's okay in a superhero comic.
1: I also feel like it plays much, much better in 22 pages of a comic book from 1994 than it did in the most recent Wonder Woman movie. Uh, yeah,
0: yeah, there is that, although I did really like that the uh Roman god of war, or was it the Greek god of war, I forget what y- name they used, Uh, had a super sweet mustache, that was pretty good.
1: Yeah, that was an odd touch.
0: <laughs> sure was. So, yeah, despair is gone for now, he'll of course be back a lot later, and Kurt and Margali reconcile. Kurt is totally still mad at Margali for keeping the truth about Mystique from him, but... He could never hate the woman that showed him so much compassion, the woman that raised him so kindly.
1: The woman who built an entire hell just for him.
0: Right. You know, it's that kind of consideration that makes a parent really effective. But anyway, yeah, it just comes back to the same theme that's just reiterated again and again, which is love lasts longer than hate. And it's nice and sweet. I I gotta say, I didn't really like these issues, honestly, any of them very much, upon my initial read, but reading them again, analyzing them more, maybe it's just my love for the characters, maybe it's just that I'm kind of a little sleep-deprived right now, and so I'm feeling very earnest, but uh, I think they actually work pretty well.
1: I also kind of want to add in context of this, that while this is a cool resolution and it's an entirely okay conclusion to come to, it also would have been just fine if Kurt had said, I'm glad you didn't die, but Please stay the fuck away.
0: Yeah, totally. I mean, the fact is, family is family is only what you want family to be, you know? You're not obligated to always love and forgive somebody regardless of what they've done just because you're related to them.
1: Yeah, and choosing not to stay at- attached to a toxic or abusive parent is not the morally worst decision. Totally,
0: totally. But uh, for now at least, Kurt and Margali are in good shape, and that seems to suit both of them pretty well, so good on them.
1: You know who's not in great shape? Zero. Remember
0: Zero? Oh yeah, Strife's old silver surfer but with a number on his forehead, digital robot assistant teleporter confidant guy.
1: Right. Zero is on the run in the aftermath of both Executioner's Song and the Fathers and Sons arc of the Cable ongoing series.
0: Strife's heretofore unmentioned robot army is hunting Zero down, because I guess Strife didn't want any sort of a record of himself or his technology around if he were to die. I don't know why. Strife's a weird dude. Whatever, let's not worry about it.
1: Because if Strife can't have things, nobody can.
0: Oh, actually, that works pretty well. Man, Strife, you jerk. You very sharp jerk. Zero does what he does best and teleports himself away from these angry murder robots and starts to repair himself in a cave while narrating.
1: Ability to fully restore operational capabilities under these conditions is dubious. Situational assessment, not
0: good. The voice you do for Zero is, I think, fully appropriate, but it really just makes me think that he's essentially Marvin the Paranoid Android from The Hitchhiker's Guide.
1: No, Marvin is much more glum.
0: I suppose that's true. Or, uh, I don't know, maybe maybe Brain Drain from Squirrel Girl? Although I guess he's much more eloquent and works in a lot more, like, academic philosophy.
1: I figure Zero doesn't talk a lot, um, and maybe he just has a sort of really basic, you know, speech transmitter.
0: That could be. But suddenly, another robotic figure that answered the techno-organic to techno-organic all-call that Zero put out through, you know, cyberspace or something along those lines. Uh, Yeah, this person appears and identifies itself when Zero asks who it is as one of the phalanx. Remember them, those creepy liquid robot people that often show up as resurrected X characters? Yeah, them. Have we seen much of them yet? I mean, Candy Southern and Cameron Hodge, mainly, and also some soldiers that turned into pink goo when they got punched.
1: Good point. Now, they're going to become a much, much bigger deal in the fairly near future, but they're not quite there yet. Because Zero says,
0: no, this other person is not one of the phalanx anymore. Zero has freed them. And this new person introduces themselves as... Doug Ramsey! Whoa! Like, he's half a muscly human dude, like, on his left side, or I guess his right side, our left, uh, stage right audience left, and half this explosion of robotics on the other side! He looks super awesome, and also he's never gonna be drawn this way again, but, uh, that's cool, cause he looks super awesome here! Also kind of a hell
1: of a cliffhanger.
0: Yeah! Now, we'll later find out that it's not exactly Doug Ramsey, well, it's not really Doug Ramsey at all, uh, It'll be a whole thing, but it will lead to a Warlock miniseries—well, it was an ongoing, and then it got canceled—written by Louise Simonson. It was part of Marvel's short-lived M-Tech line.
1: And it's pretty charming. (laughs) But before we get to the very end of this this issue, before we move on to questions, I want to discuss something that comes after the story, and that is the world's cutest pin-up.
0: Yeah, there's this pinup of, like, tiny, tiny Nightcrawler. He's got to be, I don't know, like, six or seven years old at this point, and he's all cartoonily drawn because he's a little kid, and he's cute, and he's blue, and he's chasing a butterfly, I think. Yeah. It's very cute. Yes. You know who's also very cute? Our listeners, and they've got questions.
1: John emailed us to ask how important the title Major X is to current continuity. Oh boy. So for those
0: of you who are unfamiliar, Major X is a miniseries that just wrapped up, written by Rob Liefeld and drawn by, well, mostly other people. I think he just draws the first issue. And it is basically exactly what you would expect from Rob Liefeld. So that means you probably already know whether you would like it or not. I don't want to spoil it, because it just came out, so let me try to be vague but still answer the question. So, this comic mostly exists outside of current continuity. Not entirely, but mostly. But it does reveal some important events that will happen to some central X characters at some point in the future. But that said, the way timelines work in the Marvel Universe, that's just a possible future. So, unless some upcoming writer decides to focus pretty hard on the stuff that came up in this story it's likely they'll just sort of be lost to time. It'll just be a minor continuity blip. Now, admittedly, one of those events that I vaguely, ambiguously referred to does have some pretty deep, legit roots in past stories, and that's one of the things I like about Major X. To be fair, one of the only things I like about Major X, I was not a fan. Uh, It does have a lot of attention to continuity detail, so like, hey, well done on that, Rob Liefeld, that's pretty cool. But honestly, this book being a Rob Liefeld book that feels like it came straight out of 1991 is so totally different from anything that's been published in the last 25 years that I would be very surprised if anybody was eager to pick up on pretty much anything from it. So uh, if you're asking whether you have to read it for continuity to make sense, no, you don't. Basically, if you like Rob Liefeld or 1991-style comics, you should read it. Otherwise, you can probably skip it, or just, like, wait till it comes to Marvel Unlimited. Jay Elio asks on Tumblr, I have no idea if I said that right, who, in your opinion, is the most important member of the X-Men? I know it's an ensemble, but who do you feel is the true heart of the story? I know many would say Wolverine, but I wondered what your opinions are.
1: So, what I love about X-Men, ultimately, is that... I don't think there is a most important member of the team. I think you can build something that works with the premise and works with the concept using pretty much any of of any character existing or, you know, not yet at its center and still have it work.
0: Yeah, like... In thinking of my own answer to this question, I was initially thinking that, well, you have to have had Professor X even if he's not still around, but then I remembered Age of Apocalypse where there never was a Professor X and the X-Men still very much feel like the X-Men.
1: I don't think you even necessarily need him as an inspiring figure relative to this. You, you don't really even need the team to be named after him. There are a lot of ways that you could, you could write them as having organically arisen and even organically come into that particular name.
0: Yeah, and that's one of the things I really enjoy about the X-Men. Like, there have been significant eras of the book where any character you could say is the central character, they haven't been around, you know? I mean, the Outback era didn't have Cyclops. Wolverine was dead for a long time, Storm was de-aged and away from the team for a long time or just hanging out in Black Panther, Xavier's been dead for quite a while and was on the outs with the X-Men before then. Like, yeah, we have a lot of the same characters, but it's always felt like X-Men, no matter what combination you do or don't have of them. We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts, such as the angry Claremontian narrator.
1: You thought you had gotten away from all of this, from the endless progression of Michael's Bernstein spiraling through space-time into eternity until you hardly knew where each other Michael Bernstein ended and you began. But, of course, you also thought the situation was under your control, when all along, Mishi was the one pulling the strings, preying on your self-imposed limitations to finally cement Their control of not only cross-time, but the entire multiverse. And the mic today goes to Despair. Pleased to meet you. Hope you guess my
0: name. It's Despair, by the way. Like the concept, but spelled different. Anyway, do you not see, Chris Edelman? Your place on the winding way has waned, and mine has risen. I mean, risen. Soon, all your sorcerous might shall belong to me, and the world shall know despair! Did you catch my clever wordplay? Did you? But wait, who is your newly arrived comrade? Yusuf Zahid, you say? And why is Yusuf throwing me a sword? This day is getting really weird. You wake up expecting villainous monologuing and devouring of souls, and then all of a sudden...
1: Ow! Something. Something. Despair. And with that... Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google
0: Play, Spotify, at explainthexmen.com, and inside the very concept
1: of despair! Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported.
0: If you'd like to help us stay on the air, ad-free, and free of despair, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com.
1: Thanks again to everyone who contributed to the Trans Lifeline fundraiser in the month of June. Um, You are rock stars, and we are so happy and so proud of you. Hell yeah. Next week, we're going to follow Rachel and her mullet into the time stream. As we jump to 1999 for X Men
0: Phoenix.